As the leading admissions management system and CRM for over 700 of the world's top international and independent schools, Open Apply supports every step of the applicant and family journey, from discovery through to inquiry, admissions and enrollment. We want to share a free recording of our recent webinar on managing transitions, in which our guest, Laura Schopfer, former director of the Community Relations and Head of Admissions at the International School of Zug and Lucerne, joined us in exploring how to make transitions easier for students, parents, and staff. You can access this recording by visiting the link bit.ly OA transitions, pronounced bit.ly forward slash OA transitions. Looking beyond transitions at the wider admissions journey, we would like to invite you to register for our upcoming webinar on professionalizing admissions. If you'd like to maximize efficiency and user experience while promptly and proactively meeting the demands of your admissions and marketing team, as well as the high expectation of families and parents, join us on December the 13th at 9 a.m. GMT, that's London time, by registering the link uh, bit.ly forward slash OA admissions. That's bit.ly forward slash OA admissions. Last but not least, if you'd like to find out where your school's admissions process ranks compared to best practice schools and receive free recommendations on any areas for improvement, we highly recommend you check out our free new admissions benchmarking tool by visiting bit.ly OA benchmark, pronounced bit.ly forward slash OA benchmark. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here with my co-host, uh, John Mixon. How are you doing, John? Great, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, really nice to be back online and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually, right after this podcast finishes, I've got to drive up to Poland. We're um, taking our dog to um, stay with the dog grandparents while we go to, when we go to Asia for three months. So, that's a great uh, title, dog grandparents. That's a, like yeah, a new, they, they love know. they love having the dog actually. So uh, it awesome. works out well. But no, but today we're delighted to be talking to Chip uh, Kimball. And Chip is a director of the International School of Prague, the incoming director. We're, we're recording this in September 2022, and he started quite recently. So, uh, Chip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and great to see both of you again, uh, Dan and John. Uh, really excited about having a conversation with you. And now we'd like to say a few words from a valued partner and sponsor, Faria Education Group. Faria Education Group has been with you through thick and thin, helping international schools minimize headaches and easing transitions. Whether through paperless admissions with Open Apply, curriculum first learning with ManageBack, or school to home management with SchoolsBuddy, Faria has been your partner. What's more, Faria has been expanding with additional services, including professional development for international school educators. MiniPD is a professional learning platform by practitioners for practitioners, with a global community of learners and coaches. MiniPD makes the learning experience more personal, flexible, and equitable. Looking for a PD solution for your school or something for yourself? Sign up for individualized coaching and enjoy a 10% discount using the code ISPODCAST. Head over to app.minipd.com. That's app.minipd.com to book your personal learning coach today. 
Mini PD embracing the learner in every educator. Sounds good. Well, Chip, obviously we, we've met a couple of times in person. Um, this is like the, the international world we all live in. You know, I've, I've met Chip in Prague. John, you've met Chip in Singapore and Luxembourg. So all, all over the world, diff, different places. Um, but yeah, great to have a chat. John, John, do you want to kick things off from your side? Yeah, Chip, maybe what would be really helpful is just maybe share a bit your bio, your journey, just a short kind of synopsis so people have a kind of point of reference as we delve into some of the topics that we were going to explore together. Sure, sure, great. And, and you know, what is a little bit interesting about my bio is that I've taken a non-traditional route uh, through leadership. Um, I started very traditionally as a science teacher, a, a high school science teacher in public schools in the Cal state of California in the U.S. And in my second year of teaching, I was really disturbed uh, by how many kids we were losing. And so a, a colleague and I invented an interdisciplinary English biology curriculum that we wanted to do that was project-based, that was field-based, um, that received a lot of pushback from my colleagues, but a lot of support from school leadership. And, uh, and the subsequent year, we wrote a grant to Apple Computer uh, to get technology that would support this curriculum. And we were one of 20 school uh, uh, systems in the country, in the US, that received these grants. And of course, this was at the very beginning of technology emerging in education. And shortly after that, I became the only person in the school with any technology expertise because I was the only person with any technology. And uh, so I quickly became dubbed the technology coordinator uh, and was asked to design the wide area net network, the local area network, the library automation system, the video distribution system, all of these systems. And uh, by year six, I was doing this full time as a technology director. Um, and then was given lots of responsibility early on. So by the subsequent year, was asked to coordinate technology in 144 schools in 101 districts across the state of California. And two years after that, was offered the first chief technology officer position in Lake Washington School District in Washington State, where Microsoft is located and, and was responsible for 30,000 students in that system. And I was, I was really thinking about leadership and how do you make an impact on teaching and learning while doing it through the lens of technology and information systems. And I spent 16 years in that school district uh, as a CTO, and then I took on assessment, and then I took on communications, and then I took on a region of schools where I supervised a third of the school district, then became su deputy superintendent, and then subsequently superintendent in that school system. Uh, and then in 2012, I was asked to become the superintendent at Singapore American School, um, large uh, American curriculum school based in Singapore, 4,000 students, did that job through 2019. And then as Dan suggested in, in, um, in 2021, about a year ago, just over a year ago, started as the uh, director at the International School of Prague. So I've seen uh, lots of different um, context, uh, lots of interesting leadership opportunities, both from a school reform perspective and a technology perspective and a curriculum perspective, and also from an international education perspective. So it's been a very, very interesting journey. 
What's interesting, Chip, I think, which is maybe unusual, is often people that end up in your position of leadership as a superintendent in international schools, usually the uh, narrative or the road they take is through uh, being an educator, a principal, assistant principal, curriculum director. And often IT directors are not seen as viable candidates uh, for those positions. And I personally think that's absolutely wrong because I think if anybody, IT directors usually have a K-12 uh, perspective. They're, they're strategically thinking all school, they're systems oriented, they tend to deal with big budgets. But I think many boards and search committees often find that navigate and they prefer to deal with a pedagogue. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is an interesting question and one that I've been asked a lot. At the time that I became a superintendent in Lake Washington, I was one of two superintendents in the U.S. that had come through the technology pathway rather than through the curriculum and instruction pathway. And so the question is, are there deficits or advantages of one or the other? And then the other question is, how do you uh, make up for or at least build some credibility around those other areas where, you know, for example, I have not been a principal and yet I supervised and led principals for the better part of 20 years. And so I, I, I think part of it is that technology, really good technology directors and technology leaders are typically systems thinkers yep. and great school work is about systems thinking. Um, secondly, is they do need to know how to lead and manage and um, uh, incentivize people. It's the people business. Because even in the technology space, if, if you can't lead your team well, then you are not going to be able to get your initiatives accomplished. And then, and then thirdly, it is about the management of projects and budgets and, and, and the trade-offs that go with any, given, uh, with any given space. And in today's world, much of school leadership is about change leadership and change management. And yep. there's no better uh, place to cut your teeth on change management, change leadership than their technology in education. And so I really, I learned an amazing amount uh, about leadership and leading of people and systems and others through that lens. Um, and then the other part of it, which is, okay, but what do you know about um, uh, literacy in third grade? Well, you listen a lot, you learn a lot, you rely upon the expertise of great educators, you figure out who you're going to empower, who will you listen to, what do you delegate and what do you own in terms of the pedagogical approach to education. So when you talk to my faculty here at ISP or people that I've worked with in Singapore or, or, or in Lake Washington it, and ask the question, so does Chip know education? Does he know teaching and learning? And they'll say, absolutely he does. Well, how? Yes, I was a teacher, but I was a teacher 30, 30 plus years ago. More importantly, I listen and I learn and I empower and we get the conversations going because great leadership is as much about asking good questions and understanding the context upon which you are leading as it is about content expertise. Chip, I have a question. That's very interesting. Um, we have a lot of tech directors listening to this podcast at international schools. Probably as a kind of a base, that's you know what we started off talking about. What advice would you have to any tech directors that are thinking, I'd like to get into school leadership? Anything you can say, how they should prepare themselves, what, what will be a stepping stone role, or just any, anything generally? Because I know John and me know a lot of people who are, this is on their mind of, you know, do I want to stay in this or do I actually want to try to 
get skilled leadership. And, and like you said, you know, there's there's some there's some uh, obstacles in terms of search committees' opinions. Yeah, yeah. So you know, often uh, tech leaders will think about where do I need to go or what do I need to do in order to get to that next place of, of leadership and specifically around school leadership. And the first piece of advice I would say is you've got to do the work where you're at. And so that means you need to, you, you need to be somebody who can understand and speak to teachers. When you are in the room, are you talking about bits and bytes and, and technology apps or, you, or is the first thing that's coming out of your mouth a conversation about teaching and learning? Yeah. How is it impacting the learning experience for a student? How can I empower a teacher to do their, be their best selves in the classroom through the things that I'm giving? So the first is do it where you are and do it through the lens of teaching and learning and, and, and empowering the educator. The second is um, get a seat at the table. Um, so I often talk with heads of school about their organizational structures. And in every uh, organization that I've been in in the last 25 years, the CTO or CIO, however it happens to be framed, has been a member of the directors or the superintendents, uh, senior leadership team or cabinet. So get a seat at the table. Say, yes, I, I, can, I can manage the network and I can program a switch, but I also can talk about the best professional learning for a teacher so that they can impact that third grade student with an app that, we, that we're discovering. Get a seat at the table. Thirdly is you have to be overtly um, ambitious about volunteering for things that are outside of your scope of work. So assessment, as an example, there's this, there's this really nice correlation that the, um, the entryway, if you will, into the assessment is data. So, well, I'm a tech person, I know data, I know the systems for data. So why don't you let me own the assessment agenda? And, and, and so you're looking for avenues. Communication is another one because much of communication is digital. So look for those opportunities where you have a door opener to get into a broader scope of work. And once you demonstrate that you are a systems thinker, you're all about learning, that you know how to work with people, and you can lead well in a change-rich environment, all of a sudden they see you as a leader, not just a tech leader. Fantastic. That is, that's some gold dust there. I think we'll be cool. We'll edit some of these comments and, and publish them. They're great. Yeah. You talked about uh, listening and, you know, you were referring to third grade uh, literacy and you were saying that one of the challenges or perspective is people would think that you would not know enough. And then you have said and, and your anecdotes of other people that have worked with you have always said, yes, he, he knows about learning and teaching. But the key point I think you talked about was this idea of distributive leadership, where mm -hmm. you're willing to let the experts have the the, the spotlight, but you're listening to understand. And by listening to understand, you're also building up your own capacity to navigate and understand those terms. Maybe talk a bit about, you know, how you went about with some of that distributive leadership, because I think that's often, you know, when you're in a position of power, you have to let go of some control in some ways. You have to be comfortable not sure. knowing. And, you know, Renee Brown has her book and everybody's talking about vulnerability. But the reality is sometimes much harder than what is said in the book. Any thoughts? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so many things there that are great. And I, I, I love uh, Brene Brown, of course, because she's doing wonderful work on the psychological side of things. Um, some of my other organizational heroes um, are uh, Patrick Lencioni, uh, who wrote the five dysfunctions of team. He wrote the ideal team player. He wrote, he wrote some of those, those works. Uh, Daniel Pink is one of my favorites. Um, uh, um, so there's, there's, there's a number out there. Um, in education circles, um, educational institutions tend to be unbelievably flat. It's either teaching or administration and middle level leadership is often lacking inside of educational institutions. And so everywhere I have had the opportunity, I did it really well. I think I learned a lot in Lake Washington. I think I did it really well in Singapore and we are, we are, have an emerging agenda uh, in, in Prague around what we call middle level leadership. And that is you create systems and structures whereby you are empowering faculty leadership in order to lead. You, and 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 so and, and what is often talked about is almost a, a a bad word is the notion of power, and and John you mentioned this power distribution. There's a there's a great book uh, called uh, Power by Jeffrey Pfeiffer from Stanford University. And uh, when I was doing some of my business courses at Stanford, he was one of my professors, and he talks very frankly about power and the leader's responsibility is to uh, distribute power in ways that are gonna make the biggest impact on the institution. And so I'm constantly managing power in the institution. So uh, a, a faculty member will be either empowered or disempowered by me when I either bless what they are doing, encourage them, maybe it could be as simple as a public acknowledgement or as 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 or as um, frankly not very well done as a as a very subtle slight of somebody, and keeping in mind that educational institutions, in in addition to being extraordinarily flat, they are also extraordinarily emotionally sensitive, and so if you if you if you dismiss somebody purposely or not purposely, you are actually managing a power relationship in that dismissal of another person or you empower them. And so I work very hard at figuring out who are my players, who can lead well, and it's not by title or, or by position, but by influence inside the system. And you, and, and you empower those people to lead. Um, uh, in one case, uh, both in Singapore and now some of the work that we're doing here, this was through these R&D projects where you are tapping people on the shoulder, say, we're going to go look at different schools, we're going to find the best practices, and I want you to be, bring back a, a set of recommendations. It's about empowering them that, that my job is to figure out how to get to yes. My job is not to keep putting obstacles in your way. And the more I do that, the more they're going to feel empowered and the more the system is going to move forward because you know, I'm, I'm not the expert, expert on third grade um, literacy, but I am the expert on figuring out who is the expert on third grade literacy and empowering them and build a system that will support them. That's great. Yeah. And Fantastic. I think, you know, that process is so important and I think so often overlooked. And I really like the way you describe the idea that you're not the 
uh, expert on third grade literacy, but you're the expert on who is, and you know how to give them that power and give them the, the amplification yeah. so they can move. You talk about these systems. So, you know, if, if you talk about yourself, you are a person enabling that change and that distributive leadership. Are there systems that could be into a school that when you move on to another professional opportunity that yeah uh, so john i'm going to need to have you repeat that you cut out a little bit yeah john maybe maybe turn off the video it might be better i'm not sure if it's a bandwidth issue okay oh looks like john's gone <laughs> oh sorry yeah yeah right so you know you talk about yeah. Hi, John. Uh, yeah, we can hear you. I'm a, a stop camera. Okay, I'm back in. Yeah. When I turn off we'll this part camera, I'm, I'm kicked out of the room. Okay, okay, leave it on. Okay. So you talk about, you know, you, you as a leader giving that distributive. Yeah, John, John, you keep cutting out. Sorry, every, every second or third word is, is cutting out. So, uh, um, well, I, Dan, I think I got I'm the gonna go, hold yeah, on, yeah, yeah. switch and yeah. go to my desktop. Yeah, I'll come. Yeah. Yeah, carry on, Chip. Sorry, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're still going to switch to the just switch to the distributed leadership. Yeah, I think the essence of his question was when I when when I might move on to another to another uh, position or another opportunity, how do I ensure that there are systems in place that will um, essentially encourage the continuation of this leadership that has been established and that that actually is a systems question um you know the goal of any great leader is to have the system be functioning so that after they depart the system will continue to function in that way yeah and and and, and so i think a, I, I would one way that i think about that is what i call leadership redundancy and what I mean by leadership redundancy is the values of leadership, things like collaboration, uh, things like um, uh, good listening skills, things like high levels of trust, things like our values around uh, how we're, what, what we're about as an institution. Those particular values are redundant inside of the system, which is really an issue of culture. So great leadership work such that it is not does not disappear when the leader disappears is all about building an institutional culture organizational culture that um, contains those leadership values and leadership strategies such that it will continue long after you're gone um, and again culture work is the hardest work and it's the most nuanced and um uh, and it is found in both the strategies of the leader as well as the behaviors of the leader. Um, and, and that's you know, one of the things that young leaders often underestimate is how closely leaders are watched. They're watching everything you say and do, who you say it to, and how you say it. Um, and I've had people roll into my office and, and who have said, Oh, I was really afraid walking in, and this was so relieving because I felt heard. We brainstormed some good ideas, et cetera. And 
And often young leaders underestimate just the position of power that they have, even if they don't, they, they don't exhibit it as, as people who, are, uh, who, who leverage that power. It's, it's still very, very important that they are constantly pushing the values down in the system. We listen, we respect one another, we, 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 we talk about stuff, everyone has a voice at the table. Those are the kinds of things that we're after. Knowing that at the end of the day, I have to make hard decisions sometimes and I have to make decisions people won't like, but the, 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 the thing that I am after is that when I make these hard decisions, people will say, I may not agree with the decision, but I understand why he made the decision. And when things get ugly inside the system, where uh, where um, the rumor mill gets off, goes off the rails, which it does sometimes happen, that a person will hear something that is not true, and they'll say, "Huh, that actually isn't the character of the person that I know. I'm not sure that that's true. That's what I'm after." And that's a huge commitment because you're on constantly. If you think as a leader, yeah. as you said, it, and that really requires almost discipline in some ways, because I think uh, I, it sounds like young leaders, are, if they're not aware of that, if that's not on their radar, then it's almost a discipline. It's a kind of a, a, a discipline that you have to practice and work at and constantly be mindful and self-reflective of. Right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, one of the one of the leadership challenges I've discovered in many international schools, as opposed to U.S. domestic schools or large international schools, the smaller the school, the more the school is run by relationship rather than run by systems. And nice. and 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 management by relationship is a beautiful thing. So I don't want to dismiss it, but it can be extraordinarily um um, uh, unequitable uh, and it is not sustainable because it, it is built entirely on the personality of the leader and and when you are managing by relationship it becomes very hard to be fair uh, yeah. and that if you have a chosen one you have a chosen one of the monarch then you have a great relationship <laughs> no. yeah that's right and so i work really hard at trying to to um to lead by systems we create ethos through relationship so we create a culture of care through relationship, but the decision-making is done through systems. And that chip, so I have, that's, I, I love what you're saying because that has been something I've always been challenged, especially having been an IT director for many years is where relationships dictate the platforms or the work processes or how things are done. And when that person leaves, suddenly you have this huge gap and there's not really a clear transition or sharing of right. skills and things like that. I would say, and I'm going to be provocative here, that most school leaders tend to veer towards the relationship over the systems. Why? Um, I, I, I think it is partly because of how we hire and how we, um, uh, how we promote through the system. So when we hire teachers, um, we hire teachers because they are um, great at building relationships with kids, because we know that if you don't build good relationships with kids first, the, the, the likelihood of you being effective in the classroom is, is, is minimized quite, quite dramatically. And so teachers build these, these high affect, high relational skills, which are beautiful. Um, 
well, we often promote teachers into administrative roles. And then, and then the administration administrator leads very similarly. And then they, and, and then go up through the system in that way, rather than really honing in, how do you lead an organization, leading an organization, leading a school, leading a school district, leading a school system is a different type of leadership challenge than leading in a classroom. And, and, and so I think that's part of the challenge is sometimes I think that we are looking at the wrong thing when we're trying. Now, at the end of the day, great leaders in education have to have both. You can't be a great systems leader without great relational skills and do well in school. It just, it, the, the math just doesn't work. In business, that might actually be possible, but I might argue that that's bad business practice as well. Um, but in schools, there's just no way you can get away with it. But the, what, what happens in business by contract is they will default towards having the MBA that's great on the number side and maybe light on the relational side. And if they have to default, they're going to default on the MBA side. Schools tend to default the other way. Great on relationships. They should be great at strategy. But if we're going to default, we're going to default on the relational side. In reality, you really need both. And sometimes we just default too often on the relational side. And, and as a result of that, we find um, schools are, are, are places that often are afraid to tell the truth and to be vulnerable for fear of, of, of hurting people's feelings. And it is actually, in my mind, cruel and unethical to not tell the truth to try and spare one's feelings rather than telling the truth and being honest and doing it in a way that is surrounded in care and surrounded in respect and in many cases surrounded in love but but you cannot stop telling the truth and schools too often aren't telling the truth that's fascinating so john, oh, john you're back now sorry yeah i was chip just i was something you said a bit earlier i was just kept thinking about like you mentioned about how schools normally have a very flat management structure, which is a, and I'm interested because I think on the face of it, people wouldn't think that because you, you've obviously got teachers and then you'll have, you know, a lot of middle school management positions and then above that. So it, it seems like there is quite a lot of levels. Do, do, do you mean that just the ones in the middle don't have much, always have much control or say, you know, it's really done at the top or at the, the teaching level? No, I, I think what I'm really referring to is, um, is teacher leadership. Right, so, got it. Yep. Um, you know, and, and I think the more we can figure out how to empower teacher leadership to really take on those leadership roles, the better. Got it. Great. Yep. So, Chip, one of the things that you have done uh, in Singapore American School, uh, there's actually a video that you shared with us, and you've mm -hmm. done a lot of work about significantly shifting a school culture. So many competitive schools tend to want to produce grades because grades is a measure. Most parents, when they look at school they, and the school experience, their point of reference is their own experience, which tends to be sure. more non-personalized learning, exam 
driven. The grades is what gets you to the good universities. And I know I've had the uh, privilege of getting to know some of that work through the video and talking mm -hmm. to Tim and Patrick. And you really try to do something what I would consider quite radical in the sense of really looking at personalized learning. And you have the anecdote of your biology and English teacher really looking at the transdisciplinary skills and looking at the personal project kind of thing. Maybe talk to us a bit about when you're trying to change a big institution like a school to something that is so different from the point of reference that many stakeholders have, what are some of the things that you had to do or what are some of the things you would guide people to say, you need to think about these things before? That's a, that's a great question. You know, so I think first and foremost is that often school reform um, people, whether it's a business person or a parent or an educator, are looking for a model. And there are not good models in education. There are good exemplars. And there's a difference. And the difference is that every school community has its own characteristics. It has its own set of values. It has its own culture, et cetera. So how I was leading in California is different than how I was leading in Washington State, which is different than how I was leading in Singapore, which is different than how I'm leading in Prague. Because I had to understand the culture that I was leading within, understand what the aspirations were for what we were hoping to achieve, and then trying to build a pathway to get there within our culture, the organizational culture, the culture of the, uh, of, of the city, country, whatever, um, in order to do that. So the advice that I, that I give and some of the things that I take, take into consideration is first and foremost, be very clear about who you are and who you want to become. Uh, the who do I want to become was different in Singapore than it is in Prague. There's a different set of value. The currency of success actually looks differently. The second is that if you go too radical too fast in any given context, um, it's going to blow up on you and, 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 and you, you're just not going to be successful. Sure. And so uh, even on my team here right now, again, we're still early days in this system, but the, the kinds of things that we're trying here look very different than if we were a startup charter school in the Midwest of the United States or in the, in the bowels of South Africa. Um, we are an established uh, IB or IB-like school in Central Europe that has a, you know, a university-bound aspiration, right? That is different than, be, again, being a, a startup charter school uh, in, in, um, uh, in another part of the world. So I think part of it is about being very clear about that. Then, once you understand who you are and who you want to become, it's figuring out, who is your team so that you can build a critical mass of educators who are going to help you get there? If you do not have a critical mass, and that does not, by the way, mean consensus. It does not mean 100%. It means a critical mass of your people to bring along with you and can see it and be excited about it and be passionate about it and understand how to both communicate it and execute it. It's bringing them along, then you, have, then you have a chance at actually getting from point A to point B, knowing that point A to point B is different in Singapore than it is in Prague. Yeah. So no, I, I think, 
Sorry, Dan. I was going to say, Chip, I'm interested to see what your opinion But Do you think a lot of international schools have too narrow a focus on IB results and which universities children can get into? I'm just thinking it's very interesting. If I look at now a lot of, because we know a lot of international school leaders, if you look on LinkedIn, the end of the year, all the promotion is about the, the universities the students got into. And obviously, if you look at most a lot of international school websites, it's, it's, I've noticed it becoming more focused on that. Do you think there's a general point of not taking a holistic enough approach? Do you think it's, a, do you think it's an issue, like taking a general worldview about this? Yeah, so um, of course it's an issue and it always has been an issue and always why will be an issue. Okay, yeah. so, let, let, so we have to look underneath, why are they doing that? They're doing that because the advertising, if you will, around their results is the currency that they use in order to attract customers, fee-paying parents who want who have aspirations for that in, for their kid. Yep. Most most fee-paying parents don't actually believe that their kid is going to go to Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Oxford, but they want their kid in a system that is capable of it. Should their kid have that capabilities? Yeah. Th- those capabilities. And so, you know, if I've got a if I've got a kiddo who is maybe a, a kid who may struggle academically, I, I don't ins- I don't believe that my kid is going to get a forty five on the IB, but I want to know that the school is capable of delivering a forty five. Should yeah. my kid actually have those those capabilities? So it's the currency. Well, on IB, and then um, advertising it. It actually gives you permission to do the other stuff that you know is important, the project-based <laughs> learning and the service and those other things. So scores are an indicator that we have to pay attention to, and they do actually give us permission to do the other parts in the educational experience that we think is really, really important. It is naive to believe until universities change their game, so universities change how they admit kids, it is naive to believe that we can just throw out IB or throw out AP or throw out the uh, SATs um, until the universities are changing. And in the meantime, that's the game we have to play. Frankly, we have to do it. So you have to do it. So the question is, as you're trying to do that, so I'm just going to imagine I'm an IB teacher teaching physics, and I've got a bunch of 11th and 12th graders, and there's a lot of pressure to pump through content and really deliver on a very tight schedule. Yep. Is and But at the same time, you're a leader, hypothetical leader, and you're saying, hold on, that's good, but I also want to focus on personalized lo- uh, learning, student agency. How can you balance both? Or are there certain moments, certain grade groups or certain age groups where it's more – it makes more sense to focus on maybe more the non-traditional grade and then flipping between the two, or can they live together at the same time? Yeah. So uh, it's a great question. I, and and maybe naively so, uh, or aspirationally so, believe that they can coexist. And, and that, that coexistence, and, and I, you know, I happen to be a fan of the IB, even though this is my first IB school that I've led. Um, and, and the reason I'm a fan of the IB is the, the, the IB makes attempts at doing what you just described. And they do it through, uh, through CAS, they do it through theory of knowledge, they do it through service learning, they do it through the interdisciplinary 
themes that are emerged. They, they do it through how you should be teaching the IB, which is through um, themes and principles of how the world works that are bigger than just content. The difficulty is that the DP courses in particular are driven by university professors who dictate what it is they think, think kids should know and be able to do in order to be admissible in order to the university. That's where the rub comes. So how do we manage that? Well, we manage that by trying to build into the units and build into those courses experiences that are more interdisciplinary and, and, and are bigger than just the content itself. And I do think that the two can coexist. For us as a school, um, we have said as, as, a, as a statement, you know, we are not interested in just being a pretty good or better than average IB school. We're interested in being the most inspiring, life-changing, effective, progressive IB school in Europe. Progressive IB school in Europe. We want to be bigger. And for us, that that's, goes back to our values, which is we want to inspire, engage, and empower learners so that they are curious, competent, compassionate change makers. That's the lens through which we look everything, including a, an IB chem class, a DP chem class that has a lot of content that they got to cover. We keep doing it through that lens. It's imperfect. It is ever-changing, it's driven by universities, it's hard, but I think it's achievable. Chip, I think that's probably a good a good place to leave it. John, do you have any any final questions? That was very inspiring, actually, John. Yeah. Anything else? You want? I know we're almost at the top of the hour. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, Chip, because I think so often that's the creative tension that leaders face is, you know, they they have their heart in something that they want to be really change makers, progressive and really engage people in new thinking. But that pressure from the universities, which at the end of the day, you know, school leaders can't control. I mean, you can go and visit all the admissions people you want, but really, I think it's much more difficult. So that was really nice to kind of hear how and really encourage to say no you can do both because i think yeah. so often people feel you can't but i think yeah. it's a lot of work and uh, yeah. your words really are very inspiring it's interesting yeah, i think you. we could do easily a whole whole episode on how the university system is broken you know you mentioned if you you know the admissions issue i, I mean I, I i think there's so many issues with the focus of, of students to, to prepare for universities and how universities haven't really changed their model in in hundreds of years you know and yeah, so, uh, but yeah. I think I think that that's much too big a topic to get into now. But maybe we could have a another a roundtable discussion about that. It might be very interesting. Yep, yep. Love love to chat with that. Um, there's some really good work going on with the Master Transcript Consortium uh, and and yep. others that are really trying to challenge the status quo in universities. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, our parents. Um, you know, they, they, they believe, and appropriately so, that uni the university pathway is the pathway to a, to, um, a, a big life for their children. And yes. they want what's best for their kids. And our teachers also want what's best for their kids. And they want our kids to have a bigger life than just university admission because they get it. And um, I, I guess the last thing I'd like to share on your on your podcast is – how incredibly proud I am of teachers who are in the trenches working with kids every day 
doing the very best they can to make sure that they do have these content skills, that they do have these aptitudes, while at the same time developing them into these beautiful people that requires um, uh, great in adult influencers in their lives. So, you know, hats off to teachers for the work that you do. Um, and, you know, we will make um, the world a better place through what our kids do as a result of being with us. It's a huge responsibility and a huge privilege to lead. Yeah, thank Chip. you for that shout out to all the educators, Chip. That's really so true. Exactly. Great way to finish. Thanks very much, Chip. Uh, John, until we next speak, thanks very much, yes. Chip. Thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Good to see you again, John. A real Good pleasure.